look in Hebrews 11. We'll be there one more time before we move on. Hebrews chapter 11. Saw last week as we looked that it's important to leave your children a trust fund, a legacy of trusting God in real life. I read something by Gary Hagen, who's the president of International Justice Mission. It's an organization that works to free women who've been caught in the sex trafficking trade and to stop it in countries around the world. He wrote this. I want to share it with you. After we've poured into our children all the good food and shelter and clothing, after we've provided them with great education, discipline, structure, and love, after we've worked so hard to provide every good thing, they turn to us and ask, why have you given all of this to me? And the honest answer from me is, so you'll be safe. And my kid looks up at me and says, really? That's it? You want me to be safe? Your grand ambition for my life is that nothing bad happens? And I think, he writes, and I think something inside them dies. They either go away to perish in safety, or they go away looking for adventure in the wrong places. Jesus, on the other hand, affirms their sense of adventure and their yearning for larger glory. That larger glory for them and for us is not principally in what they do, as important as that is, but in what they become. And the energy that will shape what they become is activated by faith. Today's text provides a listing and a kind of staccato flourish of the heroes of faith, men and women who chose that larger glory over being safe. We'll see the wide variety in their backgrounds, their accomplishments, but we'll see that they shared that one thing in common. They trusted God. They were commended, verse 39, for their faith. When we finally decide that safety is not our life goal, and I'm sure, speaking to you, some of you have not decided that. You're not aware you haven't decided it, but you haven't decided that. That's the default position. You haven't moved off it. When we finally decide that safety is not our life goal, when the deep longing to experience the reality of God, his love and his power, rouses the Gideon or Samson within us, then we'll come to one of the most difficult crises of faith. It's a challenge that takes us beyond trusting God with our circumstances or with our care, and even beyond trusting God for the impossible provision or the impossible intervention. This crisis of faith doesn't involve trusting God with some it out there, but trusting God with me in here. You see, by faith, most of us can affirm that God made the universe out of nothing, but still have trouble believing that he can make anything out of me. We know ourselves too well. I've always been a failure. I keep falling back into the same rotten sins over and over and over. I never change. When we hear God calling us to join him, to serve him, we say, he must be talking to somebody else. Shane Looper? 
There must be some other Shane Looper. By the way, there is. My wife is on Facebook. She found some guy. Shane, S-H-A-Y-N-E, Looper. So I emailed him and I said, I'm the original one. (laughs) But are you talking to me, God? I'm this big screw-up. I'm too scared. I always mess up everything. But trusting God means entrusting yourself to his transforming plan and power. You're not just trusting God with the impossible conditions out there, but with the unmanageable chaos in here. And he's trustworthy. Look at our text, Hebrews 11. I'm going to read from verse 31 through 40, but I'll refer refer back to verses 28 and 29 and 30 briefly. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. They were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. When I was thinking about this message, I realized that I'm going to have the same problem the author of Hebrews had so long ago. There's not enough time to look at all these heroes of the faith individually. The best we're going to be able to do this morning is draw some comparisons and contrasts and then some conclusions from the lives of these people of faith. If you want to look deeper into it, come on Wednesday night when we'll look at some of these folks at 7 o'clock out in the lobby. The most important thing that can happen this morning is not just that we'll draw conclusions, but that God will speak to us. And not just about these heroes, but about our lives. I want you to notice a few things. First... That's the overview. Notice the wide variety of people here. There are Jews, and there are Gentiles. There are illustrious people in this list, like David, king of Israel, and there are people of questionable character, like Rahab the prostitute. There are people who seem to have been born brave, Samson and David, and people who quailed under fire, like Barak and Gideon. There are people with household names in this list and people who are nameless. We have prophets and kings. We have prostitutes and the destitute. Some of these heroes of faith had parents who modeled faith for them. Some had parents who modeled fear for them. That tells me that any man or woman, including you, 
can become a person of faith, whatever his or her heritage, income, class, ethnic background, or religious upbringing. Secondly, note that in most cases it is an individual who expresses faith. But in two cases, in those verses right before these we just read, the crossing of the Red Sea and the destruction of Jericho, it's a group that trusts God. Faith can sometimes be a corporate exercise. It's possible for a group of people to exercise faith together, although a leader is usually necessary to model that faith for them. When a group exercises faith together, special things happen. When even a group of just two or three, Jesus said, agree on anything on earth, it will be done for them in heaven. But when a large group like us trust God together, the way opens and the walls fall and the sea parts and adversaries are conquered. Today it's, a, it's common to hear people talk about the faith community when they really only mean the religious community. A religious community has a creed. It has a formalized doctrinal statement. But a faith community has a credo, a shared I believe confidence in God. It's important that religious communities, including Lockwood Community Church, become faith communities where their people are really trusting God. When they do, powerful things happen. Third, note that faith was sometimes expressed by what people did. At other times, by what people didn't do. And at still other times, by what people had done to them. By faith, people did deeds of glory. Look at verse 33. They conquered kingdoms, administered justice, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames. But it was by faith that people also hid from deeds of glory. Verse 34. They escaped In Greek, that's they fled. They fled the edge, literally the mouth of the sword. They fled by faith. That's not how we usually think of it, is it? And it was by faith that people endured what others did to them. Look at verses 36 and 7. Some faced jeers and flogging, while others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. You know what that tells me? It tells me that I can't look at you and judge whether or not you're acting by faith. Not usually. We can only make that judgment about ourselves. Can you see that it might take more faith for a person to endure an illness than it does to be healed of one? It might in some cases take more faith to flee the mouth of the sword than to be bitten by it. Handing over a difficult situation to God may sometimes be an act of great trust, while rushing to take control of the situation ourselves may reveal a profound lack of trust. Now that's an overview. Let's take a quick look at some of the specifics mentioned in these verses. First look at verse 33. There's a line there that's caused some confusion. Our author says that through faith, men and women gained what was promised, or literally obtained promises, plural. Now that could mean, as the NIV takes it, by faith they obtained the things that God had promised them. And yet look down at verse 39. There we read that they did not obtain 
the promise, this time singular. So which is it? Did they obtain the promises? Did they not obtain the promise? I think there are at least two possibilities. It may be that in verse 33, the author is saying that these believers did receive the fulfillment of God's immediate promises, like deliverance from Egypt. While in verse 39, he's saying that none of these believers had received the fulfillment of the ultimate promise, God's salvation through Abraham's seed, the Messiah. But there's another way to take the Greek phrase, and I think there's something to it. The original language says, Simply, they obtained promises. That might well mean, and the tense of the verb seems to support it, that because of their faith, God made promises to them that he was not able to make to people who don't have faith. I think both interpretations are possible. Both are probably true. But be aware that God can make promises to people who trust him that he cannot or will not make to people who do not trust him. Faithless people can't receive what God wants to give them. In fact, they probably can't even want what God wants to give them. Now notice the phrase in the middle of verse 34. Whose weakness was turned to strength. This is one of the characteristic traits of authentic faith. It strengthens people in times of weakness. And don't let anyone fool you. All of us have times of weakness. The Apostle Paul himself said, when I am weak, not if I am weak. That weakness can manifest itself morally. We're not strong enough to resist a particular temptation. Or it can manifest itself physically. We're unhealthy and unable to do the work that needs to be done. It can even manifest itself emotionally. We don't have any drive. We're overwhelmed and sad. I say it again. Everyone suffers weakness. Even apostles like Paul and prophets like Elijah. The Lord Jesus himself, Paul says, was crucified in weakness. Now, our Lord's weakness was never moral like ours, but even he knows the shared human experience of being weak. When Paul became aware of his weakness, it's interesting what he did. He didn't berate himself over it. Oh, I am such a wuss. I just can't ever do what I need to do. He didn't do that. Rather, he saw it as an opportunity to experience God and his power firsthand. To the Corinthians, he wrote, There was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me or to to beat me, to slap me around. That's the idea. Three times I pleaded with the Lord. Take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. He learned to see weakness 
not as a failure. Now, this is really important. This needs to become true of us. He learned to see his weakness not as a failure, but as a kind of precondition for God's power. When the weatherman sees an unusual amount of low-level moisture in the atmosphere and a storm front approaching that will lift that moist air aloft, and when he sees the air become saturated and the clouds mount up higher and higher, and when the winds begin to veer in a clockwise direction, he issues a tornado watch. He says the conditions are right for tornadoes to form. When Paul saw his own weakness converge with hardships and persecutions during the approach of some personal storm front, he knew that the conditions were right for God's power to be displayed in his life. Whenever the realization, I can't do this, hit him, it was followed by the assurance, but God can. And he learned to trust, that's the key, that God would. That he would provide the strength. And he wasn't let down. When I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. Now our author mentions people and their weakness. Look again at verses 36 through 38. Some faced jeers and flogging. While still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. And he says, the world was not worthy of them. There are still such people in the world, you can be sure. And the world is still not worthy of them. The word worthy connotes something weighed in the balance. The Greek word for worthy has the idea of something weighed in the balance. When God looks at these believers, never many of them, often overlooked and usually regarded as failures, he says to himself, weighed in the balance, the rest of the world is not worthy of these ones who trust in me. So I'll prepare a better country for them a country that's worthy of them. That country is theirs by promise and by oath. But it's not theirs yet. Even though these were all commended for their faith, verse 39, yet not none of them received what had been promised. And why is that? Because, verse 40, God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect? Not without us. The Greek reads, lest without us they should be made perfect. It's as if God said to these men and women, I will make you perfect. I'm bringing everything to completion. But not without my people from Lockwood Church. So you'll have to wait. These men and women of faith, these spiritual giants, had to wait for us before they could be fulfilled. I think there are at least two reasons for that. First, notice the word better in this verse. Did you see that when we read through it? As you should recall, better is the key word of this letter. 
These giants of faith were waiting for the one who is better than angels. That's chapter 1, verse 4. Waiting for the better hope, chapter 7, verse 19. The better covenant, 7.22. The better ministry and better promise, chapter 8, verse 6. The better sacrifice, chapter 9, verse 23. And now they will have, chapter 11, verse 16, a better country which they will share with you and me. But put plainly, the first reason they had to wait is this. Jesus had not yet come. They were waiting for him. But secondly, they were also waiting for us. That they waited for Jesus, we can sit back and say, ah, yeah, I get that. But that they waited for us is a mystery. God designed things so that his people win as a team, not as individuals. Don't forget that. We are in this together. And not just with one another in this room, but with the other people of Jesus that, Paul, uh, that Phil prayed for this morning who are gathered all around the county. But it's not just those of us meeting around this county, but the people of Jesus around the globe, people persecuted in Somalia today, forgotten in Kyrgyzstan, investigated in China, burned alive in Nigeria. But see, it's not just the people around the globe, but the people of Jesus across the ages. We're, we are in this together with Abraham and Moses and the prostitute Rahab, with David and the Maccabees and Peter and Paul and Augustine and Aquinas, with Luther and Tyndall and Teresa and John of the Cross, with Carrie and Taylor and Eliot and Bonhoeffer and Sundar Singh, This is the great cloud of witnesses, the company of the committed, the people of God. We and they are mysteriously united. Not without us, we cry. And they answer, of course not. Not without you. I read an article recently from the LA Times about floating fire ants in the Brazilian rainforest. I have weird ideas, don't I? (laughs) Biologists have been puzzled by them for a long time. If you take one ant and you drop it in the water, it'll flounder around momentarily and then sink and die. But when a flash flood washes away a colony of these ants together, they would somehow form a kind of life raft or life rafts that help them survive. They've even been known to stay afloat for months until they could reach dry land. Scientists recently solved the puzzle. They dropped a large number of ants into, into water. And the ants quickly spread out and formed themselves into these rafts. Each individual ant used its claws and the adhesive pads on its legs to grab on to another ant or to other ants. One researcher said, at first it looks like this tangle of bodies and limbs everywhere. But the longer you look at the picture, the more you're able to distinguish between different body parts and see the connection. The insects then use the air pockets that form around their bodies to keep them afloat. So this article in the LA Times ended this way. The research sheds light on how deeply social insects act together, almost as if they're part of a superorganism. That's the word that got me. A superorganism. See, that's what we are. A superorganism called the body of Christ. We don't survive alone. 
We don't even experience salvation alone because we are not alone. We are united to Christ and through him to our brothers and sisters around the world and across the ages. That's something we are reminded of each time we come to the table and celebrate the mystery of Holy Communion. I'm going to wrap this up quickly. Before we come to this table, I'm just going to close with a a single admonition. We've been talking about faith for weeks and weeks and weeks. Don't forget that faith is future-oriented. It looks ahead to its reward. It reaches forward to grasp God's promises. It acts in the presence, in the present, with the future in mind. Okay, you have that? Now, some of you may say, but you don't know my situation. I don't have a future. You know, we've all felt that way from time to time. I don't have a future. This is what I say to that. Those words came through you, not from you. You're being used as a ventriloquist dummy, and it's the devil's lap you're sitting on, and it's nonsense you're spouting. Don't be a dummy. Renounce that lie and claim God's future for you. I don't care if you're on your deathbed. You have a future. Claim it. And it's not just a future for you. There is a you for the future. A you that God loves. A you that trusts God and is united to his people. By faith, claim your future. Trust God to become the future you. Now let's pray. And still we look at ourselves and say, can you make anything out of me? But by your spirit, through your grace, make us people who trust you even with ourselves. May faith be the biggest thing about us, our confidence in you. And Lord, we plead for this in the name and for the sake of Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Amen.